Hello, and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a music history podcast where I am attempting to teach Mika music history. And Ajax just wants pets. He's a good boy. <laughs> and Mika is largely failing to learn music history. Or pay attention. Well, yeah, that would mean you don't learn it. Good boy. I guess, honestly, a lot of times I am paying some attention and I just don't remember. That's going to sound terrible on the record. He's just <laughs> rubbing all butts, up against you. Butts, butts. Uh, follow us on social media, twitter.com slash soundofhistory underscore. Leave us a rating, review, all of that kind of stuff. That's the best way to get in contact with us whenever I inevitably get something wrong in one of these episodes. All right. That's what I got. Mika is the host now. Mika has a kitty cat. It's a remix. Can you hear me even okay? I can, yeah. Okay. Well, I just didn't know with him scratching on stuff. I mean, that doesn't sound good, but I can hear you through it. I have a good boy. He's my good boy. I love him. Don't bite me. Don't bite me. Don't bite me. Um, I don't have thoughts about things. Okay. That was, is that the end of your Mika no longer the host now? Probably the quickest one ever. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Mika no longer the host now? I feel like there's something that I'm supposed to anti-plug. I don't know. Eczema. I don't enjoy eczema. It's fair. This is a new experience for me and I dislike it. That's all. Okay. Do you remember what we talked about last episode? Wasn't that long ago. Uh, you should be able to do this. Yeah, I know. Don't tell them that. <laughs> Singer songwriters. There you go. Do you want to give us a brief recap of what singer-songwriters are? They sing, they write their own songs, they play piano or guitar, they use their music as a diary. That's it. Okay. Oh, just them. Yeah. Like maybe a little bit of a backing band, but yeah, it's them. Yeah. I mean, you said it with the, the diary thing. Their music tends to be a little bit more introspective and sometimes can be kind of like metaphorical and weird and it also is a lot of it is kind of like breaking the forms of what music was because at the time it was all like the pop music formula and this is people like Bob Dylan and other artists kind of broke that and got to make music the way they wanted to make it there were so many artists to choose from for this episode a lot of different singer-songwriters that did very important work but I settled on Joni Mitchell mostly because I want to learn more about her and her work I feel like it's a name that I've heard a ton, but I don't know a lot about her. So I was really excited to like write and research this episode. I know nothing about her. That was my next question. None. Have you even heard of her? Like, yeah. Does the name sound familiar? Yeah. More than from just when we mentioned her last episode? I don't know. Okay. <sighs> Roberta Joan Anderson. Yeah. Good call on that name, girly. <laughs> was born... 
1943 in Alberta, Canada. Her I thought we were talking about American music history. We've talked about so many British people. <laughs> American music point. history. Her mom was a school teacher and her dad was a grocer. Shortly before Oh, okay. Shortly before the end of World War II, they moved to Saskatchewan. That's a kind of chicken. Okay. <laughs> when Joni was nine, they settled in Saskatoon, which Joni still calls her hometown. When that she is a show on Cartoon Network. Yeah, that makes sense. When she was a kid, she had a friend who was something of a piano prodigy, and that friend introduced her to classical music. She begged her parents to let her learn piano at the age of seven, but she quit after only a little over a year. Joni said that she heard melodies in her head and wanted to get them out, but the teachers only wanted her to play the classics, so she gave it up. She did want to do it for classical music. <laughs> yeah. <I don't. laughs> at the age of nine, like many other children of the time, Joni contracted polio. She was hospitalized for a few weeks, but her mother helped nurse her back to health. While she was in the hospital, she started to sing and perform for patients. Also at the age of nine, after a choir practice at the church, she started going... Oh, wait. After a choir practice at the church that she started going back to because she made a deal with God that she'd go to church if he let her walk again... Oh, my gosh. She started to smoke cigarettes. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it was the time. Everyone did. But it, I feel like I would I put that in there because it comes up again later. Maybe not. But that's what I assume. You're just, you're just saying those two things are exact opposites. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I don't remember what I was thinking when I wrote this. <laughs> she wasn't a great student, and she spent most of her time on artistic endeavors like painting, dancing, and music. In seventh grade, her Australian English teacher... Like, the teacher is Australian. She's not learning Australian English. Man, <laughs> that would be useful if you were, like, in Australia or something. <laughs> she is not. She's in Saskatoon. But he really inspired her. She saw him hanging her paintings in the school hallway, and he told her that if she could paint with brushes, she could paint with words. So she started to write poetry. That's so precious. And her first album is dedicated to that teacher. That is so precious. Educators, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Around this time, country music started to get really popular in her area, but her mom hated it and didn't want her to learn guitar. I don't think that her parents want her to learn music very much. <laughs> I put her in lessons that she immediately quit. That's fair. And that's probably why. Yeah. She's like, no, you just quit. You just quit piano. Yeah. We're not doing this again. And her mom probably just tied acoustic guitar to country music that she didn't like and didn't want Joni playing. But anyway, Joni learned ukulele instead. <laughs> As all white girls do. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, she was able to get a guitar and she taught herself to play from a Pete Seeger songbook. Do you remember Pete Seeger? Only by name. We talked about him last episode. He did like the protest songs. Ah. Uh. Who's that dude? But polio had weakened her left hand, so she had to invent a new tuning method in order to play the guitar. She started to sing and play with some friends around the area at parties and in coffee shops. 
Her first performance was in 1962 at a local club that featured jazz and folk artists. She didn't play jazz at the time, but she loved it, and she always sought out jazz clubs and jazz music. That's kind of her big influences in her career, jazz and folk, which is like wild things <laughs> to mix together. Yeah, for real. And I think her, her fancy way of tuning was just loosening the strings. Like I think it was just tuned so the strings were easier to hold down. I don't know, though. Yeah. After high school, she enrolled in the Alberta College of Art since all she wanted to do was paint. But after a year, she realized that the classes were doing nothing for her, and she dropped out. She really is not about formal <laughs> education. Nope. She's cool. Yeah. It, I mean, it worked for her. She felt disillusioned by the high focus on technical ability over free expression. Okay. Yeah. She told her mom that she was moving to Toronto to be a folk singer. Her parents didn't like that <laughs> since they remembered the Great Depression and really valued education. Ironically, she started performing regularly at a coffee house called The Depression for $15 a week. Which I, I feel don't like know was, if that's good or bad. I feel like it's decent at that time for like a little coffee shop player. I don't know. Because this was, what, 60s? Early 60s? We're going to find out. She also started to appear on a few radio and TV shows around Calgary. She couldn't afford dues to the musicians' union and struggled to find good work without being a member of the union. So she started working at a department store to pay rent, and she was busking on the side. While playing in the folk scene in Toronto, she learned that the folk music was pretty territorial. The established folk singers all had their signature songs, which they didn't write, and only they were allowed to play those songs. So all of the best songs were taken. That's when she decided to start writing her own songs. What? $15 in 1963 is equivalent purchasing power of $145. Okay, that's not a lot. I mean, like that... That difference is a lot. That difference is a lot, but like that amount of money, it's like almost $300 every two weeks. It's like 600 bucks a month. Like that's... It's not a lot. It's not a lot, but like... Neither was $15. (laughs) Did you hear all the stuff about the territorial? No, I didn't. I wasn't paying attention. Okay. Just just spark notes it for me. She couldn't afford dues to the musician's union. Uh Uh-huh. But she felt like she deserved it. I don't Mm. know. That's why I heard. (laughs) No. (laughs) She had trouble finding good work as a musician without being a member of the union. She couldn't afford to be in the union. Okay. So she started work at a department store and busking on the side. Okay, I did hear that. But she had noticed that the folk scene in Toronto was very territorial. The established folk singers all had their signature songs. And And none of those singers wrote those songs. It was just their signature. So she wasn't allowed to play any of those signature songs, and all of the best songs were taken. So that's when she decided to start writing her own songs because she couldn't find any good ones that she was, like, allowed to play. That's annoying. Yeah. In 1964, she learned that she was pregnant and gave birth to her daughter in February of 1965. The father had already left her by the time that she gave birth. 
week. She wrote, quote, he left me three months pregnant in an attic room with no money and winter coming on and only a fireplace for heat. Week. The spindles of the banister were gap-toothed, fuel for last winter's occupants. Unable to provide for herself and her child, she put her daughter up for adoption. She would write lyrics about the situation in some of her songs, but it largely remained a secret for most of her career. Joni later said that this situation is what inspired her to start writing because she couldn't communicate with the one person that she most wanted to talk to, mm. so she began to write personal songs. The story about the adoption came out in 1993, like long after she was a well-respected artist, mm -hmm. when a former roommate told a tabloid magazine about it. That's also weak. Come yeah. on, guys. After Joni gave an interview in Vogue, she would meet her daughter in 1997. She said after meeting her daughter that she lost all inspiration to write music. A few weeks after giving birth, she was back working the folk scene and met an American folk singer named Chuck Mitchell, who was immediately attracted to her and her singing and told her that he could easily find her work in the coffee shops in America. So Chuck took Joni with him to Detroit. In 1965, at 21 years old, she married Chuck and they kept playing music together. That's how be she became Joni Mitchell, because it was Chuck Mitchell. Here she is, playing a local Canadian TV show in 1965. Me and my uncle came riding down from Colorado, where Texas bound. And we stopped off in Santa Fe, it's been a place. That's Joni Mitchell. Early Joni Mitchell. Interesting. It's your only thought about it. It's interesting. She sounds so proper. Okay. That makes sense. I feel like that's just kind of folk at that point. Really? Hmm. Because this was pre-Bob Dylan's massive success where he kind of broke down the rules of what folk and music had to be and kind of mixed in rock it was so it was very i don't know maybe i'm completely wrong about that i don't know a lot about folk music I know. unfortunately her marriage to chuck mitchell did not last and they divorced in 1967 but she kept the name it's a good name yeah afterwards she moved to new york city she started to play different coffee shops and clubs around the east coast and started to make a name for herself through her songwriting and her unique guitar playing she wrote a few hit songs for other singers before she recorded any of her own material. In 1967, she was performing in a club in Florida when David Crosby walked in and was immediately impressed. Do you know David Crosby? No. He's the guy from like Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Okay. He's a big singer-songwriter at that point. Okay. 
So Crosby took her to, to Los Angeles and started to introduce her to prominent music industry people, and she quickly landed a powerful manager who had major label ties. She was soon signed to Reprise Records, which was a Warner affiliate. At the time, in folk music, most artists were putting rock influences into their albums. David Crosby used his influence and convinced the label to let Joni do a solo acoustic album. So that sounds like it would be different. Yeah. Than everything else. Yeah. Less rocky. Yeah. In 1968, she released her self-titled debut album, which is also sometimes called Songs to a Seagull. Why? I I don't know. Maybe it was the name of a song on it. I don't know. The album was highly praised for the maturity of its lyrics. She kept up her habit of touring relentlessly, and other artists started to cover her songs, so more and more people started hearing about her, and her popularity started like an uphill climb. By this time, she had moved to Southern California and was living with Crosby, who introduced her to a lot of his Hollywood friends, where she got significant exposure to press and radio people. She followed up her solo debut album with her second album called Clouds in 1969. It included a few songs that Joni had written, which had been hits for other artists. She painted the cover art for both of these first two albums. Cute. I think she painted the art for all of her albums throughout her career. That's awesome. This album peaked at number 31 in the Billboard charts and won her a Grammy for Best Folk Performance. Here's one of her songs that was a hit for another artist before she released it on Clouds. It's called Chelsea Moore. was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I heard was a song outside my window and the traffic wrote the words it came a ringing up like Christmas bells and wrapping up like pipes and drums oh won't you stay like she's to already put like on the day and we'll wear it till the night comes more relaxed was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I saw was the sun through yellow curtains and a rainbow on my wall blue red green and gold to welcome you crimson crystal beads to bed that's Chelsea morning okay I don't know that you're going to be the biggest Joni Mitchell fan after this one. Yeah, I don't know that I am either. It's not the best music to listen to when you're very tired, though. So, Like, it's chill. Yeah. It's good. It's chill. It's fine. I mean, that's singer-songwriter in a nutshell. <laughs> after Except this... for some of my favorite artists are singer-songwriters, <laughs> so there's got to be sure. something. I guess, like, 70s singer-songwriter, that's the vibe. After this album, she started a relationship with Graham Nash who was another folk singer-songwriter who she met through David Crosby. He is also a member of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Is she going to collect them all? <laughs> She's working her collect way through. Collect all the Infinity Stones. They eventually moved in together. Everything was really great for a while, and Joni wanted to get married, but Graham was hesitant since he'd been married once before and it didn't go well. While they were dating, Graham got involved with a folk supergroup called Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Obviously, with David Crosby, who was Joni's ex, Neil Young, who was Joni's friend that she introduced to Crosby, Graham Nash, and another guy named Stephen Stills. That doesn't come up again. Here's a song that Graham wrote 
that captured that period of happiness when they first got together. Graham Nash wrote about their time together. Joni toured Europe with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and after a show in Sweden, they were talking about America and their dissatisfaction with some of the things that were happening, and for some reason, that really annoyed Joni. It's probably not that conversation, probably something someone said in their conversation. I don't know. Mm -hmm. This led to a huge argument with Graham, and then things started to turn sour in their relationship. It's never just one thing. No. (laughs) <laughs> also i think i think david crosby like became famous as part of a folk rock group called the birds could be wrong about that but that's where i think he started okay. not important it's just i remembered it hmm. crosby's girlfriend was killed in a car accident oh and crosby took it really hard as you would so graham went on a seven-week boat trip with him full of tons of drugs and alcohol good friend yeah. <laughs> when Joni met them a little bit into the trip, there was more arguments. By all accounts, Graham was not in a good place at that time, and Joni wasn't the type of person to take abuse. So one night, when Graham was back in L.A., he received a telegram that said, quote, If you hold sand too tightly in your hand, it will run through your fingers. Love, Joan. And that was the end of their relationship. All right. <laughs> it's about how I would expect a relationship between like two very like poet people, druggy poets to end. All right. This relationship inspired many songs on her next album, which was called Blue, and it was released in 1971. Why was it called Blue? <laughs> I think because the album cover was blue. That's got to be it. <laughs> Before this album, she decided to take some time off touring to focus on writing and her art. Blue was an immediate success, peaking in the top 20 on the charts. She used simpler rhythms to really allow the listener to focus on her vocals and the words. It was her most confessional album, and some of the lyrics revealed deep cynicism about the world, but then some are super hopeful, romantic songs. 
She has said that she felt on display at that point in her career, that she had no personal defenses. That kind of happens if you put all your shit out there. Yeah. Here is the first single from Blue called Carrie. That's a dulcimer. Mama and Dad had one, and now Harry has Unimpressed. I'm. I am impressed with the dulcimer. Okay, let's just start. I guess. After Blue, Joni's career was established, but also growing exponentially. Crosby said about her talent, "Quote: By the time she did Blue, she was past me and rushing toward the horizon." End quote. She moved out of L.A. to a more secluded place in British Columbia, so she could have some peace and solitude. And then she decided to go back on tour to support Blue. Peace and solitude. <laughs> By 1974, she has started to experiment with her sound a little bit more. She started to incorporate elements of jazz into her songs. In 1974, she released a more pop-friendly commercial album called Court and Spark, which would end up becoming her best-selling album. With that album, she tried to break away from her folk roots and actually had a full backing band. After this album, she toured with a band called L.A. Express, the drummer was her boyfriend, and that tour was a massive success. Some of the shows were recorded and used for a live album later that year. She was nominated for a few more Grammys, including being the only woman nominated for Album of the Year. She moved back to L.A., buying a house in Bel Air with her drummer boyfriend. She really just goes all in. Yeah. Yeah. Might as well. Life is short. Well, <laughs> Okay. By 1976, she had broken up with her boyfriend and was staying with Neil Young. Okay. She felt really restless and was itching for more travel and probably some creative inspiration. Two friends mentioned that they were driving across the country to Maine, and she decided to go with them. When they got there, the two friends decided to stay in Maine, so Joni drove back to California alone. That sounds miserable. She said that she basically wrote her next album on that trip while driving. She said, quote, This album was written mostly while I was traveling in the car. That's why there were no piano songs. End <laughs> quote. So what, she can play guitar while she's driving? <laughs> I guess. I don't like, know. what? <laughs> I have no idea. I guess she can pull over and like yeah. figure out a melody, but that's still or funny. Or maybe she just means there's no... Maybe she meant piano songs as in like slower songs, like more... I don't know, maybe the traveling made her more restless and energetic. I have no idea. The album was maybe her most experimental to date. 
It, some, it had some heavy guitar songs and still a lot of elements of jazz music. It reached number 13 on the album charts, but the singles failed to chart, and although it sold really well, it didn't sell as well as her early, more commercial albums. Joni believed the album was probably her most unique. She said in 2006, quote, I suppose a lot of people could have written a lot of my other songs, but I feel the songs on Hegira, I think that's how you say it, H-E-J-I-R-A, All right. could only come from me, end quote. Here's one of the singles called Coyote from that album, which I'm not going to say the name of again. I butchered it once. That's a good album. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your ranch. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending. I'll just be getting home with my real to real. There's no comprehending just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes and the lips you can get. And still feel so alone and still feel related. Like stations in some relay, you're not a, a hit and run driver. No, no, racing away. You just picked up a hitcher. Very interesting. Yeah, it's Coyote. I mean, there's definitely like way more elements going on to focus on rather than just guitar yeah. and voice. Through the rest of the 70s, she continued to release albums and toured a pretty standard and good success. In 1960, er, 1983, after a massive world tour, Joni was working on another album. David Geffen, who was an industry legend and her label head, suggested bringing in an outside producer to help her utilize some of the new techniques. They brought in a British synth-pop producer, and Joni did not love the idea. She said, quote, He may be able to do it faster, he may be able to do it better, but the fact is that it, that it then wouldn't really be my music, end quote. The resulting album did not do great. It peaked at number 63, which was her lowest chart performance in 18 years. It also contained a song, Lambasting Televangelist, that got her in trouble with the churches. <laughs> I want to hear that. <laughs> I don't know that I have that. She kept experimenting with synths and drum machines for her next album. She also collaborated with a ton of major artists like Don Henley, Billy Idol, and Willie Nelson. The album featured a few different songs about political events. events. Here's a song that she worked on with Billy Idol. It is called. Computer's not loading the title. Dance and Clown. Dancing, 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 
Do you know anything about Billy Idol? Very little. Not really. No. <laughs> not did. at all. Nothing. That's, that's Dancing Clown, by the way. He did uh, that White Wedding song. It's good day for a white wedding. That song. You know that one? No. Yeah, well, he's just, he's kind of more of like a rocker. He's British, kind of more of a rocker type guy. So it's kind of weird that she would pair up with him, but it's an interesting song, I think. Through the late 80s and into the early 90s, she rarely performed. She released an album in 1994 called Turbulent Indigo that was seen by the wider public as her return to form with more commercially accessible songs. I think that that's a dumb name. (laughs) I mean, it's no blue, but you know. It mixed social commentary with guitar-focused melodies and won her two more Grammys. It was probably helped along by the fact that it coincided with a new generation of artists rediscovering Joni's massive body of work. Also around the release of this album, she ended her marriage of 12 years to Larry Klein. Who's that? (laughs) He was her bassist back in the early 80s. 12 years. Good job, honey. Yeah, she's good. I shouldn't joke about this. It's just kind of funny. In 1998, she released one last album of original works before spending the next decade on other pursuits. People started to notice when this album came out that her voice wasn't quite there anymore. She wasn't able to hit the notes that she used to. Many attributed this to her lifetime of smoking. See, it came back around. Wow. (laughs) But she said it was because of a compressed larynx and vocal nodules lingering effects from polio. Probably a combination, if I had to guess. I'm guessing smoking is not good on your voice either way, so probably both. Joni's next two albums featured no new songs, and she said they were just to fulfill contractual obligations, which are the best kind of (laughs) albums. But her new vocal range gave her the opportunity to put a new new interpretation on some old material, which is kind of cool. I can get more of that raspier sound to some of her more falsetto songs. She officially announced that she was leaving the music business in 2002 because she called it, quote, a cesspool. And she hated the power ma- ma- she hated the power the major industry people had over the music. She literally just got in with major industry people at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Like, but you can still kind of tell like when that one producer, when David Geffen wanted to bring in a synth pop guy and she's like, but then it wouldn't be my music anymore. Like, I feel like putting out the songs that are her songs with her vision has always been very important to her. Yeah. And then she saw it this time that like the major industry people were deciding what kind of music should come out and what music you should play, and she just wasn't. She didn't care about that, which I can respect. Mm-hmm. But in 2006, rumors started that she was working on new material. This was four years after her retirement from the music industry. Mm-hmm. In 2007, she returned with an album of new songs called Shine. It reached number 14 in the charts, her highest chart position since 1976. Here is a song off that album called If I Had a Heart. Why did she write Shine? Why did she write it? Yeah. I don't know. Just wanted to.
literally me <laughs> in the back of my head. is not good all right well that's if i had a heart that's in 2006 uh seven why does it sound like it's from like not that like that sounds way older (laughs) that sounds awful well she's way older recently Joni got in a little controversy in 2010 when she called bob dylan who was a longtime collaborator if not a friend a quote fake and a plagiarist she refused to explain what she meant by that. And That's always a good sign. 2013, she denied ever having said it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Honestly, though, I mean, if that's the worst that you're doing. Yeah. That's, I can't that's, be mad at you. It's <laughs> pretty unproblematic life. It's just, it caused a huge stir because, like, no one had ever called Bob Dylan a plagiarist. And then it's like, if he was and someone who was that intimately close to his work, said that that's like big deal but who knows what she meant because she did not explain it <laughs> so she's always the sign of a great argument <laughs> lots that can it's back like, it up it's it's just a tweet you just say it and then step away <laughs> don't have to explain what you mean or defend it you just Goodness. say it <laughs> it reminds me of that tiktok where it's like that guy is saying something like i think women are like cars and then you hear a girl say, explain. And he's like, no, <laughs> I have fear I have said too much. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my goodness. These days, Joni splits her time between her house in L.A. and in British Columbia. She, focus, she focuses more on her visual art and doesn't perform. I want to see her visual art. But will occasionally do public speaking for environmental causes. Should I wait until you're done looking up because you don't pay attention when you look up? No, you can keep going. We have like a very little left. That's okay. I'll try and listen. <laughs> You'll try? Yeah. In 2015, Joni was taken to the hospital after being found unresponsive in her home. Oof. She had suffered a brain aneurysm. Oof. And spent mon- months in the hospital. In 2016, David Crosby said that she was l- relearning how to walk. It also took away her ability to speak. Her speaking ability eventually came back, but in 2020, she said that she was still struggling to walk. She said that she hasn't been writing or playing music recently as she focused on getting her health back, which, like, fair, yes, do that. She has approved a few archival projects and best-of compilations, but, like, obviously no new music. In January of 2022, in support of Neil Young, she demanded Spotify remove her work from the platform as a protest against them buying the Joe Rogan podcast that many claimed spread misinformation about the COVID pandemic. So you can't find her stuff on Spotify, at least most of it, anything that she had the rights to. So they 
will not be included in my Spotify playlist that has all of the music that we feature on this show because it's just not there. So sorry about that. All right, well, that's Joni. She's not my favorite artist, but it's still cool to learn more about her. She was very influential. She did a painting of a cat chasing a yarn ball, and there's a dog there, and it's by a pool. Nice. (laughs) I like it. I like it, too. You going to buy it? No. All right, well, that's... We kind of take a very abrupt switch after this. Our next episode is about disco. So it's probably about as far from singer-songwriter, folky stuff as you can get. Talk about disco, then we talk about the Bee Gees, and then we talk about ABBA. I like it. So join us whenever that that happens. I don't know. It'll happen sometime. Maybe a sound of conspiracies will be in there somewhere. How does there more conspiracies? There's a lot. There's a lot? Yeah. The next one's about whether or not Avril Lavigne has been replaced. And then we talk about Jay-Z being a time-traveling vampire. Oh. I have a long list of like ridiculous conspiracies that I'm excited to talk about. Okay. And then Jacob has proposed we do a new show called Sound of Hauntings, where we look at ghost stories from music. There are ghost stories from music? Probably. I don't know. Or ghost stories that involve music in some way. It could be a little bit dubious. Interesting. Anyway, that might be coming down the pipeline. Interesting. Let us know what I got wrong. I'll bring back Correction Corner. Let us know on Twitter. Yeah, you got a lot of stuff wrong. Probably did. I want to know how she tunes her guitar. That's fair. Okay. Any other, any last thoughts on Joni? She's chill. Yeah. I respect her. Okay. She's just in her lane. Yeah. Sucks Doing to recover from a brain aneurysm. Yeah. Anyway. Alright, well, thanks for listening. Goodbye!